0: Always changing. Six. Miss Tabitha, thank you. Children, you may be dismissed at this time. Everybody else, please take out your copy of God's Word and please turn in that copy of God's Word back to John chapter 8. And don't panic. Today, we're finally going to take a break. It has been three weeks of fairly hard and heavy sermons. I think, hopefully, because we've had a number of hard and heavy words from Jesus. Remember, this is the sermon that Martin Luther calls a dreadful sermon. An appalling and dreadful word of farewell. And we've just been sitting in it and stewing in it for three weeks. Let's take a break. (laughs) Here goes Tess. Uh, This week, our goal is to rest. Our goal is to look at Christ. Last week, we focused on our identity. Activity reveals identity, reveals paternity. Remember, we looked at like father Like Son, we considered how what you do reveals who you are, reveals whose you are. Eternity is determined by identity. So it's important to consider regularly, who am I? Whose am I? That was last week, our identity. And it can be rough and tough to look at and consider ourselves, our sinful, selfish selves. But this week, it's Christ's identity. This week... Christ's holy, loving, glorious, beautiful self. It is edifying and encouraging always to consider Christ. There is nothing better than we can study than Christ. And that's what we get to do this morning. So, rest. Rejoice. A break from the hard words. Oh, there will still be a few. So, sort of a break. Um, But we're now coming to the conclusion, finally, of this long conversation and confrontation between Jesus and the Jews. And ultimately, this whole conversation is really about the identity of Jesus Christ. That's what this whole thing is about. The Jews said in verse 25, who are you? That's the question around which this whole affair revolves. But here's the thing. Here's the big claim that Christ is making and making clear today. Here's why this whole thing is about to explode. It's not just this whole conversation that revolves around his identity. Christ is claiming here that the whole of life revolves around his identity. That the whole of reality revolves around his identity. That your life and your identity and your eternity are entirely dependent ...upon his identity. That's quite a claim. But if it's true, he is, very, he is being very kind in this passage... ...in telling them and us again and again and again, who is he? Who is he? And then we saw in verse 30, many believed in him. But, as we've seen, there's a, such a thing as belief that is not belief. There's a belief about Christ that is not saving belief into or unto Christ... For this all is one long conversation between Christ and the crowd. His audience nowhere changes in the course of this conversation. And so we quickly move from verse 30, many believed in him, to verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. All in the course of one conversation. What? Why? How is that possible? Well, it's because they didn't actually believe in him. How do we know that? Besides the attempt to murder him with rocks? We can know that uh, they didn't believe because their response to the revelation of Christ does not in any way appropriately reflect the glory and the grace of Christ. Their response to the revelation of Christ does not in any way appropriately reflect the glory and the grace of Christ. Right? Does that, does that make sense? Uh, our sermon title this morning is Revelation and Response. And the response is supposed to correspond in some way with the revelation. If you were to come up after the service and say, great job, and give me a dollar. Um, now, don't we do not do that. Right? We don't, that's not a thing. We don't do that. But if you were to come up after the service and give me a dollar, I always say something like, hey, thank you. That, that's nice of you. I've been wanting a candy bar. I appreciate it. Right? It was nice of you to give me a dollar. I responded with appropriate, reasonable gratitude. Thank you. I'm going to get a candy bar. But well, let's be honest, right? It's just a dollar. If you're going to come up to me after the service and give me $100, well, right, my response should be a little bit different, shouldn't it? Wow. Thank you. That is very generous of you. Thank you for thinking of me and blessing me. It means a lot, and I can buy a lot of books with that number of dollars. Thank you. Okay, This is not a passive-aggressive attempt for you to give me money. right? This is, this is an illustration, so don't, don't try this. But you see what I'm saying? The revelation of a more glorious gift results in a more gracious response. Does that make sense? But if you were to give me $10 million after the service, well, my response would be different. I don't know how I would respond. Shock? Awe? Maybe stunned silence? Maybe tears? A hug of some sort? Some sort of acknowledgement of my inability to express my thanks enough Ever, I would be forever changed by your gracious act. I would be forever thanking you for that generosity. Hugely glorious gift, appropriately huge, and humbled, gracious response. But if you were to give me that $10 million and my response to you was the same as my response to the $1, that would be a problem. Right? That makes sense. We get that. That would reveal... A problem. That would reveal some sort of problem with my heart, some sort of problem with my mind. The fact that my response would utterly fail to reflect the glory of the revelation of such a gift would prove that I really did not know and love and understand and appreciate that gift or the giver of that gift. And that's the problem with the crowd in John chapter 8. And that's the problem with many of us today. That that has been the general thrust behind this series of sermons. The glorious revelation of the glory of Christ creates and demands a particular response. A response of faith. True faith. A response of gratitude and love and commitment and obedience and delight and joy. Grace makes us glad. And so again, I'm trying to help myself and all of us consider whether our response to Christ in any way reflects the revelation of the glory and the grace of Christ. I'm I'm the chief of sinners here. I fall woefully short of responding in the way that I would like, so what do I do about that? John Owen writes this in his work, The Glory of Christ. He says this, This is the universal remedy And cure. This is the only balm for all our diseases. I am prone to hyperbole and over exaggeration, so I love big, bold claims like that. Universal remedy and cure. Sign me up. What is it? What's in the title of his book? Owen spends 300 pages claiming that it is a sight of the glory of Christ that is the universal remedy and cure for our souls. And so throughout that book, Owen calls us to the great privilege of meditating on the glory of Christ. He calls us to a continual contemplation of Christ, which Owen argues will carry us cheerfully and comfortably and victoriously through life and death. That's our goal this morning. The point of this passage is a revelation of the identity of Christ. And then a corresponding revelation of the only appropriate response to Christ, right? How do we? How can you appropriately respond to Christ? Well, again, yeah, we've seen and we know that it's only by the grace of God. It's only through the work of the Holy Spirit, of course. But the Spirit works through means. He works through the means of the Word. This Word. And so this morning, I want you to consider three things as we seek to better consider the revelation of the Christ to His life and our response to him, Number one, we're going to start off by considering Christ's gracious warning of judgment. We've got to start there. I think that's where Christ starts. Consider Christ's gracious warning of judgment. Point two, consider Christ's gracious offer of life. And then point three, here's the point of the whole thing. Consider Christ's gracious revelation of glory. All of these three together reveal to us more of the identity of the one who is life. Who are you, they say. How can and should we respond to him? Well, let's read our text. Uh, This is the most important part of the sermon. This is the most important part that you should pay attention to, for this is God's word. John chapter 8, picking up in verse 48, in the middle of this conversation between Jesus and the Jews, reading to the end of the chapter. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. And the Jews answered him, Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. If you would bow with me, let's begin first with a word of Father, help us now, we ask. We ask that you would show us Christ. We ask that by your spirit that you would give us the sight of the glory of Christ that is the universal remedy and cure for our souls. Father, I cannot do this, uh, but you can do this. Father, I am distracted by the things of the world. We are all of us in this room distracted by the things of the world. We pray that you would help us right now, in these next couple of minutes, to focus on Christ. To focus on the word that contains to us and communes to us and reveals and relates to us the Christ who is life. Father, my only desire this morning is that we would love Christ more as a result of this word. And Father, we need your help for that to happen. So Father, we ask that you would work through your word by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so all of our points start with consider. We'll consider a little bit more what it means to consider in point three, but for now, point number one, consider Christ's gracious warning of judgment. If you look at your text, you should see that our first point is coming out of verses 48 through 50. And I know I said less hard words today, so I'll try to be brief here, but look at how our passage begins. Jesus has had a number of hard words for the crowd. Remember, the crowd at this point is a mix of the Jewish religious authorities and just kind of the people in general. So let's review for a second. We're trying to consider Christ as he is and as he reveals himself. Not as we want him to be. Not as we try to make him out to be. So look back briefly over your text. Remember some of the things that Christ has said. Look back at verse 21. This is what Jesus says. He says in verse 21, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Jump ahead to verse 34. We saw in great detail where he says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We just saw him last week say in verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. So it's, it's clear. Jesus is not messing around here. Jesus is not like me. Right? I so hate conflict, and I so tend to fear man that my tendency is to generally avoid confrontation and to avoid things that need to be said That's not good. It needs to be done, as we see Jesus doing here. Remember the Puritan David Clarkson from two weeks ago. He is the most faithful friend and worthy of most esteem and affection that deals most plainly with us in reference to the discovery of our sin. So what we're seeing in this text, full of hard words, is Jesus as the most faithful of friends, as he labors to help us see our sin and see it for what it is, its seriousness. If sin is slavery, if sin is death, then there's nothing kinder than the revelation of that sin and the revelation of the solution for that sin. That's what Christ is doing. But let's be honest, right? We, we, we hate this, don't we? I hate this. I'm still so prone to retreat from and revile the revelation of of my sin, I can confess publicly in the pulpit of how much of a wretched sinner I am, but you come to afterwards and draw attention to that sin or say anything, I'm like, oh, wait, no, hold on a second here, that's, that's not true, no, right? this, is, this is how we all react to the revelation of our sin, and so okay, let's be careful, of course we can do this poorly, of course we can do this out of, not out of love, but out of hate, but let's remember that Christ does nothing poorly, for Christ does all things well. And so we seek to model ourselves after him. And so we should seek to help one another in the discovery and defeat of our sin. But we must do it very carefully and kindly and compassionately, uh, gently and graciously. It can always and only be out of love for the good of the other. And that's what Christ is doing here. So consider his kindness in the revelation of their sinfulness. But then consider also their response to his kindness. Look at verse Forty-eight. They respond just as we are so prone to respond. What a start to our passage. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I love how they put that. Are we not right here, Jesus? Are we not right in saying that you're insane and possessed by Satan himself? Remember, Jesus has just said, you are of the father, your devil, the devil, and they fire right back. Well, you have a demon. And what about the Samaritan thing? This is evidence of how... This is evidence of the escalation of the situation. This is evidence of how angry and offended they are. You know, you've had one of those situations where, like, you're kind of just losing control, and you finally just, like, blurt out what you think is going to be the most hateful, hurtful thing that you could possibly say. That's what they do right here. Remember, over a thousand years ago, know your um, biblical history. Over a thousand years before this, the kingdom has split north is Israel, south Is Judah. And the northern kingdom falls about 150 years before the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. Assyria comes in and just decimates Israel and takes many of the people out of the land into captivity. And then the Assyrians resettle that land with many pagan Gentiles from other nations all over the place. The Samaritans were the result of the mixing of the remaining Jews in the land with the Gentile pagans they to the jews they were the worst to the jews they were half breeds to the jews they were apostates they had rejected the jews believed uh, the biblical faith they were the enemies of god and so keep in mind what jesus has been doing up to this point he's been challenging in a sense their jewishness at least in their perception and in calling into question them having god as their father they now think that jesus is it must be just like the Samaritans. They're saying, you're the half-breed. You're an apostate. You are an enemy of God and the Jews. So calling him, we, don't, we can't quite appreciate the significance and the seriousness of this accusation here. It was sort of like an ethnic slur and a cultural slur and a religious slur, like all rolled into one thing. This is them bringing out the big guns. They've gone for the jugular. You are a Samaritan possessed by a demon. But look at Jesus. He is unfazed. Don't miss how he responds to outright hatred and attack. First of all, it's just calmly. I love this. Look at 49. I do not have a demon. This is one of the greatest understatements in the whole of Scripture, right? But he also doesn't let their sin slide either. Don't miss that. He doesn't just ignore the slight. God never ignores evil. And this is the height of evil. I honor my father... This is very clear what he says here. Listen. And you dishonor me. And hold on to that for point number three. You dishonor me. What's the big deal? Well, who really is this me that they are dishonoring? You can dishonor me. Me, Matthew, I'm talking here now. No big deal, really. But who really is this Christ that they are dishonoring? And that we dishonor in our sin? That's going to determine the significance of the slight. But this is just a helpful warning as an aside here. Don't dishonor Christ. He doesn't skip over the fact that they are dishonoring him. He calls them out for it. The very first petition of the Lord's Prayer, the main thing that we are to pray, and yet maybe the least thing that we pray, hallowed be your name. God, set apart, sanctify, treat as holy, honor your name, Uh, may we honor him. Are we concerned about the honor of our Lord at all? Are we yet uncomfortable with how people use the Lord's name in their exclamations? Are we uncomfortable maybe with how we are so prone to use it if we just slightly change the sound and then it's something different? We're going to get into that one day. Um, But Christ is very concerned about his honor and God's honor. Look at what he says in 50. Here's the warning. Here's our first point. Don't miss this because it could be easy to pass over. Verse 50. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. That is a gracious warning of judgment. Judgment from God himself, the judge. And it is this that explains verses 21 and 34 and 44. This is why sin is slavery. This is why sin is death. Because God is freedom and life. And God is good and God is just. The good and righteous God will and must punish all evil and right all wrongs. And there is no greater evil. Nothing more wrong than to dishonor the all-glorious Christ. His beloved Son with whom He is well-pleased. Remember the words of Spurgeon from last week. He says, me, an Adam, dust, me, to doubt, deny, despise God and his word. That is the evil of evils. That is all of the worst sins that you can think of rolled into one. This is, remember, this sin in the language of Ralph, Ralph Vinning. Our sin is our attempt to dethrone God, to un-God God, to kill God. That's what sin is. Unbelief, it is a dishonoring of Christ. And Christ need not worry about that dishonor because there is one who will. There is a judge and he will judge perfectly and completely. We opened uh, wonderfully with Psalm 8, uh, Psalm 7, right before it, uh, verses 8 through 11. The Lord judges the people. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation, it literally says hatred, but they are uncomfortable with that word. So they went with indignation because we don't know what it means. Uh, God feels indignation every day. Do you have room in your theology for verses like that? Hebrews nine twenty seven. It is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Listen, if that's true, and you just just hypothetically just consider if that's true. If you have a soul, if there is a God, if there is an eternity, and there is a judgment that determines the nature of that eternity, there's nothing kinder than for Christ to warn us of that very real and very impending judgment. Consider the judgment of God. Seek to live more in light of the reality of the judgment of God. And again, as a side note, It's in light of the vehemence and the vitriol of their response to Christ. I think this is a helpful reminder for us as the church today. It seems that back in chapter 2 of John, with the clearing of the temple, remember it's not a cleansing of the temple, it's a condemning of the temple. But when Jesus does that, that response, first, it's more mild. It's kind of like, hey, you know, what are you doing? Could you show us something that proves your authority to do something like this? Now, it's you are a demon-possessed Samaritan. Right, those are different responses. Right? The response has developed and evolved. And we should understand a similar shift in our culture's response to the church today. Right? Our culture's response to us for years has generally simply just kind of been more of a mild, like, Christians are dumb. And that's, kind of, that's kind of been it, generally. And so for years, much of our response has been apologetics and logic and arguments and reasons and proofs that demonstrate that we are not dumb. That our faith is not illogical and irrational and dumb. And again, that wasn't a wrong response. It's just an incomplete response. And I think we're seeing some of the effects of our just kind of lack of a, a robust response today. Because our culture's response to the church has increasingly shifted from Christians are dumb to Christians are bad. Right? It's shifting from foolish, silly little Christians to hateful, bigoted, loathsome Christians. Like father, like son, last week. We shouldn't be surprised by this. We're seeing the world's response to Christ in our passage. We should expect, as the followers of Christ, the same response. Remember, we considered back in 7 7 Christ's very clear pronouncement the world hates me. The world hates the Christ because he reveals to it its evil. We should not expect or demand any better. And thus, we should not freak out or panic. When we receive a similar response. And we should and we must respond to the hatred just like Christ does here, with great patience and with great love, but also with great truth. He doesn't hesitate to call out uh, what it is that they are doing. But we have got to start getting it into our heads that if the world hates Christ, which He says that it does, then it will hate His people. Doesn't matter how hard we try to be relevant. It doesn't matter how much we try to hide the embarrassing parts. It doesn't matter how poppy and cool our music is. It doesn't matter how polished our website. It doesn't matter how many poor people we feed. The world will hate us as it hated him. You just need to be ready for that. It's part of following him. If the world has no problem with you, you may have a problem. Once people realize what you actually believe, you can say all that you believe in God and that you kind of like Jesus. But listen, once people get under the surface of that surfacy thing that everyone has no problem saying, and once they start to really understand what you believe, without the grace of God breaking in, they will hate you. And they will mock you. We believe that we are wretchedly evil. That we are separated from the all-good God because we disobeyed him. Because there was a couple, uh, however long ago, who disobeyed him and we were all experiencing the death and the sin and the effects of that. And we believe that our only hope is that same all good God becoming a person to come to us and to die for us and to rise again from the dead. And that the only way that anyone can uh, live is to believe in him. That's crazy. It's utterly crazy to the world without the grace of God. But with the grace of God, it's crazy good, right? Point number two. Let's keep moving. To respond rightly to the glory of Christ, consider first Christ's gracious warning of judgment, but second, consider Christ's gracious offer of life. You want crazy? Here we go. Verse 51. Wake up, by the way. Pay attention. Look at 51. Don't look at me. Look at the verse. Hear and consider this verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, stop there. I said, just look at this, don't look at me, pay attention, pause, because that's what Jesus is saying there. That's what Jesus means with truly, truly. In the Greek, truly, truly is literally amen, amen, or we pronounce it amen, amen. Lifted from the Hebrew root word that means certainty or steadfastness or truth. This was used as a hearty declaration of confident agreement. And Jesus begins certain phrases with it to confirm and emphasize the trustworthiness and the importance and to call attention to what he is about to say. It's like Jesus kind of breaking the fourth wall, looking up and saying, wake up, all of you, wake up and pay attention to this because this is absolutely true and certain and sure and extremely important. Side note again before we get to the verse. Do you know why we say amen at the end of prayers? I don't know if we really do. It often, today, means little more than this is the end of my prayer. (laughs) The end. That's, That's what we mean with amen. No. We're familiar with the first question of the wonderful Heidelberg Catechism. We're talking about considering Christ? Consider a catechism. The Heidelberg is wonderful. The first question is wonderful. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death. That's what we're coming to, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it goes on and gets better and better and better. Read that and know it. Last week was whose are we? The catechism claims that your only comfort in life and death is that you are Christ's. Is that where you seek to find your comfort? It's only in Him. But do you know what the very last question of the catechism is? 129 questions. Here's how the whole thing ends. What does that little word, amen, express? Amen means this shall truly and surely be. It is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I pray for. That's amen. God says in and with the whole of his word, this truly and surely is, and we respond in prayer with may this truly and surely be. Christ says amen to indicate the truth. We say amen to receive and agree and submit to and rejoice in the truth. And so, here's your application today. Say amen. Not right now. I'm not looking for a, can I get an amen? I'm not looking for that. Um, But, listen, I'm trying to bring amen back. I'm trying to bring it back. When Pastor Mike or anyone is up here praying, when we are praying corporately together... It's not as if there is one person here actively doing something while the rest of us are there passively observing something. No. Because we all know how easy it is to listen to something without actually listening to it. But we, we all know that. It's so easy to hear the words but not pay attention to the words. May that never be in our corporate prayers. Right? Pastor Mike is praying and we are praying alongside him. We are hearing those words that he is praying over us and for us, representing us. And then we are pronouncing our amen. And as we pronounce our amen, we are affirming those words. And we are agreeing with those words. We are saying, this is true. God is true. May this be true. His words are my words. Amen is a confession and confirmation and expression of faith. Amen. We amen one another's prayers. Expressing uh, our agreement and our affirmation. So, Christ initiates with amen. This is. Christ's people respond with amen. May this be. Consider your amens. Back to the text, though. I wanted to do a whole sermon on that one word, so there's a snippet at least. Back to verse 51. Jesus has alerted us. He has grabbed our attention, verily, verily, truly, truly. This is true truth. Listen to this. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's the truth. There it is. There's the gracious offer of life. I and mean, come on, again, it's insane. Remember, they're accusing him of being insane, and then he is saying things like this You will never see death. What? This is a truth? Again, how can this be true? It's hard to get accurate numbers in the middle of a war, but estimates are around 6,000 Ukrainian civilians so far have died. Upwards of 4,000 Ukrainian military deaths, and some estimate as many as 15,000 Russian deaths so far in this short conflict. That's a lot of death. We are approaching a million COVID deaths just in our country, over 6 million in the world. That's a lot of death. Closer to home, we saw a number of deaths among our own people last year. You will never see death. We've seen all kinds of death. And even more remarkable, Jesus himself is about to die. All of his disciples are likewise going to die. It seems often brutal and painful deaths. What then can Jesus mean? Trace and track the Trulys. Look back to the last, truly, truly. 34. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What does that have to do with death? Keep going back. I was working on this and I thought there was a truly in verse 21. And I thought I had a brilliant idea as I was tracing these back. There's no truly in verse 21 when I looked at it and I was sad. Um, But the the lack of the truly does not affect the truth of the claim. So what's so bad about being a slave to sin? Verse 21, you will die in your sin. Twice in verse 24, you will die in your sins. For Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Why is that? We say it a lot. Sin separates. Sin is a separation. And you could think pretty accurately also of death as a separation. Physical death is the separation of the heart, mind, or soul. Those are all the same things. Heart, mind, or soul. All the same thing. Physical death is the separation of that from the body. And we know that Jesus can't be talking about that. We will all see that death. He must be talking about something else then. He must be talking, verse 21, about that death in sin. He must then be talking about spiritual death. And since sin separates from the God of life, spiritual death is the permanent, eternal separation from the God of life. And it is in reference to that that Jesus says, you will never see death. And we can be confident that that is what he is talking about here in light of what's to come, especially in light of chapter 11. You never know what to do, and you have to speak at a funeral. Go to John chapter 11. Verse 25 of John chapter 11. Here's Christ's gracious offer even more clearly. They have all just seen death. They've just seen Lazarus' physical death. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die... That is physical death. Yet shall he live. That is spiritual life. And everyone who lives. Spiritual life. And believes in me shall never die. Spiritual death. And he says. Do you believe this? What a promise this is. It's insane unless it's true. You are going to physically die. We are all going to physically die. The question is. What are you going to spiritually do? Are you going to spiritually die? And physical death is nothing compared to spiritual death. You have a soul. And you know that you do. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into our hearts. As Augustine put it so famously over 1,500 years ago, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Right? Our restless hearts, our longing for something bitter, better, bigger, better, longer, are evidences that we have souls that go on into eternity. And if that's true, it would be the height of foolishness then to be obsessed with, focused on, concerned with a couple of short decades at the expense of any concern for eternity. We've just seen the reality of God's just Judgment. We've just seen that sin separates us from the good God of life. Wisdom would dictate that we be extremely concerned with the solution to this, the human problem. Christ is holding out to us here the only solution to the human problem, sin and death. He says you will never see spiritual eternal death. You will never experience the dreadful effects of eternal spiritual death. And that is the way that he can truly say you will never die. And and isn't that the one thing that we want? Isn't death the one thing that we really fear, if we're honest with ourselves? There was a famous book back in the 70s titled The Denial of Death. It's a pretty effective summary of the whole book. In the denial of death, Ernest Becker, a famous sociologist, argues that it is the fear of death that haunts the whole of human life. And he argues that it is the fear of death that is the mainspring, the source of all human activity. He says the basic human motivation for all that we do is our biological need to control our basic anxiety. He says everything, he argues that everything that we do ultimately flows from our need to deny the terror Of death. I think he's on to something there. One of my favorite non Christian philosophers, Luke Ferry, opens his A Brief History of Thought, a philosophical guide to living, saying this What do we truly desire above all else? To be understood, to be loved, not to be alone, not to be separated from our loved ones. What is all that? In short, not to die. And not to have them die on us. But daily life will sooner or later disappoint every one of those desires. Ferry, a great French philosopher, not a believer, argues that death is the problem of philosophy. The whole of philosophy exists and is all about dealing with the problem of death. For death is the problem of life. And here in our text, in this one amazing verse, Christ claims to have the solution to the problem of life. And so this is as big of a claim as it gets. Here's why you cannot respond apathetically to Christ. Here's how he either is who he says he is or he's insane. Or he's a liar. Or he's the worst deceiver ever. You must consider this claim. And you must consider it carefully. Because look at the verse again. Look back at verse 51. Remember, sometimes very small words are very big words. Christ is offering the best of things. Christ is offering the one thing that we want. But don't miss that little two-letter word that opens the claim. You see it? If. If. There's a condition to the claim. I've heard John 8 before uh, referred to as the if chapter of John. And again, this is why we've taken some time to consider ourselves, to consider our faith. Verse 19, if you knew me. Verse 31, if you abide in my word. Verse 36, if the son set you free. Verse 39, if you are Abraham's offspring. Verse 46, if I tell you the truth. Verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You will never see death if you keep his word. Which also then necessarily means that you will definitely see death if you do not keep his word. And so, what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean to keep his word? Verse 47, you know, reading read it in context. There's always clues in the context. Verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. So part of keeping God's words must be hearing God's word. Well, skip back to verse 31 again. This is such a key verse. If you abide in my word. To keep God's word is the same as abiding in God's word. And we saw last time that one of the key components... Of abiding in Christ's word, we defined it as persevering. We defined it as communing, but we also defined it as obeying. That's why Christ goes into great de- when He goes into great detail about abiding in Him. In chapter 15, the whole conversation is soaked with this same keep word as well. Abide and keep go together. 14:15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. So, uh, abiding, uh, hearing, keeping, is obeying God's word. Why is, why is this so important? Why does this whole thing, uh, life itself, depend upon the keeping of Christ's word? Does this make sense? Do we understand what he's claiming here? 663. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 668, Peter has said to the Christ, you have the words of eternal life. How can that be? How can these words, it's a book, it's written by men. It was written over the course of a thousand years. Um, it was written on three different continents by 40 different people in three different languages. How can this book be and do these things? How can this be life, eternal life, and how can this man claim to give life? Claim that he can make it where we never see or taste death. And, on, don't, and, and consider these first two points together. How can he graciously offer this life, point two, within the context of the reality of impending judgment, point one, that he has just warned us of? How does this make any sense? Point number three. Consider Christ's gracious revelation of glory. None of the above. None of this makes any sense without this. Without the identity of Christ being true. The identity that he claims here being reality. Back to the text. The Jews respond to Christ's insane claim in verse 51 with indignation in verse 52. Now we know you have a demon. How do they know? What's their argument? Well, you just said That someone can never see death. But Abraham died. The prophets died. Even the best of men have died. Verse 53. Who do you make yourself out to be? Same as verse 25. Who are you? This is all about Christ's identity. Don't forget that. Back to 53. Again, Abraham and the prophets died. Are you claiming to be greater than even these, the best of men, Jesus? Yes, (laughs) That's exactly what Christ is claiming. And so then in 54 and 55, Jesus goes back over some ground that he has already covered. You claim to be children of God, but it is he, my Father, who glorifies me. I know him. You do not know him. And then look at 56. Here's where it starts to get really crazy. Here's where the Jews are probably starting to look around on the ground, or they're trying to look for a rock pile kind of at this point. 56, Jesus, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure uh, what that means. Uh, The commentaries go wild with this verse. And there are all kinds of speculation about what this means, that we just do not have time I think the simplest answer, most likely, I'm not going to speak definitively on any of these, but I think most likely this means that Abraham embraced by faith the many and grand promises that God made to him, promises that were all ultimately about Christ. Remember, you will have a seed, a son. Uh, in you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. How is that? What is all that about? It's about Christ. It's about the snake crusher. It's about Genesis 3.15. It's about the one who would come and set his people free, defeating sin and evil and Satan. That's what the whole of the promises to Abraham are about. And we can go into Romans. We are right now. Come to Bible study. We could go through Galatians. And we can see how all of those promises made to Abraham, made to Israel, were ultimately about Christ for God's people, spiritual Israel, the church, Jew and Gentile alike, saved by the grace of God. Maybe also his seeing Christ day includes Genesis 22. Remember, in the sacrifice of Isaac. Or the not sacrifice of Isaac. Because God provided a ram. God provided a substitutionary sacrifice to die in the place of Isaac so that Isaac could live. That ram was a type of Christ. Abraham, I think, had to have some sort of understanding of that. Maybe it's also Genesis 18. When the angel of the Lord, who literally is the Lord, the angel of the Lord is Yahweh himself. The angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ who comes and talks with Abraham. Abraham literally saw Christ then, in a way. I guess so there's all kinds of possibilities. The point is that somehow, in some glorious way, Abraham saw the day of Christ. What's the response? Oh, he was glad. There it is. Glad because of grace. He rejoiced because that's the only right response to the revelation of Christ. The Jews then, Abraham has seen and given evidence of that in his response. They then obviously have not seen because they respond in verse 57. You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? First of all, I'm like, I'm only like 30. I'm like, what are you? This is 50. Kind of thing here. I'm not even close to 50. Um, no. It's just, they're just picking a big old round number. And they're just simply saying. That's silly. Jesus. Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. You're not even close to 50. What are you really claiming here? Jesus. Verse 58. Let me tell you what I am claiming here. Let me indicate for you again. To pay attention. Truly, truly I say to you. There it is again. Truly, truly, I say to you, here's the big one. Here's the biggest one. All the other ones hinge and hang on this one. Before Abraham was, I am. That's the identity of Christ. That's the Christ who is, I am. And what is that? That is the climax. In the culmination of this whole long confrontation. That's the point of all of this that we have been building towards. That's the whole point of all of this. this. is Christ's, uh, clearly claim- This is Christ's clearest claim to deity and divinity in the whole of scripture. This is Christ's identity. Are you greater than these, the best of men, Jesus? Yes. Because I am the God-man. I am God himself. I am Yahweh. That's what... I am means. Remember, we keep, we've seen this many times now. Jesus keeps using this strange Greek construction. Ego, I me. Mean. I, ego, I me. Mean. I am. You don't need them both. Seven times he says with the predicate, I am the light, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life and so on. And seven times he says it with no predicate. Just I am. We just saw it in verse 24. Unless you believe that I am, there is no he in the greek the esv unhelpfully adds the he unless you believe that i am you will die in your sins so jesus is very clearly and very confrontationally taking god's self-revelation of his own personal name in exodus 314 and claiming it for himself exodus 314 god comes to moses in the burning bush by the way that's christ in the burning bush that's the son It's not the Father, that's the Son who is the revelation of the Father. There's Christ in the burning bush and Christ, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ says to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, the Lord, all caps, remember, that's the name, that's Yahweh, God's personal name, Yahweh has sent me to you. And so here Christ very clearly is saying, I am that, I am He, I am, Yahweh, God. And there can be no question that's what he's saying. Because we see very clearly that they understand that that's what he's saying. Verse 59. We're considering responses to Christ. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Stoning was the punishment for blasphemy. In seeking to stone him, they are accusing him of blasphemy. They are understanding his claim to be God himself in the flesh. This is the gracious revelation of the glory of Christ. Christ is telling us very clearly and very kindly who he is. And John has been building towards this. John went out of his way to make this clear in the opening, in opening his whole book with the words in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And almost then in closing his whole book with the words of Thomas in chapter 20 verse 28, my lord and my god. You don't get to say that about a man. You only get to say that about God. And it is this greatest of revelations that deserves and demands the greatest of responses, It is this that has been driving me lately and consuming me lately. It is this that as I increasingly see and understand the glory of Christ by the grace of God, that I am still often so concerned and saddened by the coolness and often indifference of my own response to the glory of this God. And so, again, we asked it at the beginning, what do I do? Well, the first thing that I do And the first thing I commend you to do, if you are like me, is to take great comfort that this glorious Christ is also the gracious Christ. Did you catch what he did up there in shifting so quickly and seamlessly from verse 50 to verse 51? Did you see what he did in the contrast between those? Don't miss miss who this Jesus is. Verse 50, you dishonor me. There will be judgment. Verse 51. Keep my word. Believe in me and live. You see that? What a kindness. Look at how he responds to their hatred. He still holds out to them the offer of life. And he still holds out to you in all of your sin the offer of life. This Christ of all glory is the same Christ of all grace. You insult me. You dishonor me. You deserve judgment for that. Believe in me and do you see these two things coming together in this one glorious Christ? Take comfort in who he is in his grace. And I take comfort in his prayer for me. You know that Christ prays for you? If you are his? You know one of the best things that he prays for you? It's John seventeen twenty four. Do you know what he prays for you in John seventeen twenty four? Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, that's us, that's the church. I desire that they may be with me where I am to see my glory. Remember that universal remedy and universal balm? The sight of the glory of Christ? You know what Christ is praying for? That you would see the glory that you, Father, have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There is Christ himself praying for the very thing that I need. I struggle to see his glory. Christ is praying for me that I would see his glory. What a Savior. And then second, in light of that, in light of his comfort and compassion, in light of his grace and his prayer, in light of what he has done for me, I then must increasingly and diligently strive to seek and see his glory. How? Again, he just told us. He doesn't ever leave us hanging. He just told us, if you keep my word, if you abide in my word, the word's of eternal life. It is of eternal significance that John opens his book revealing Jesus Christ as the Word. That that could not be more important for us to get and to understand. Remember, words communicate. We communicate with one another through words. We commune with one another through words. We reveal ourselves through our words and then we relate to one another through our words. That's what Christ is from God. And that's the only way that these words can be worth anything, because these words are eternal life, uh, because he is the God, the word of life. And so these words, then, are the means that that God has ordained by which we see Christ and know Christ and behold his glory. These are no mere words. And so the word, then, if this is true, the word, then, becomes everything to us. These are the means of life itself. These are the meeting place with life itself. Because Jesus Christ is contained in and communicated in and through these words. And so the solution to your death problem, I hope this is not disappointing, it's found here. And so church, we must return here. Uh, We must consider this word. The one thing that the church in this country desperately needs is a commitment to this as the ultimate, final, inerrant, sufficient, necessary word from God. This must consume us and conform us because it literally is the word of life. And so to consider, to seek to elevate our response, to match the glorious revelation of Christ by his grace, dependent on the spirit. Here's what you do. You throw yourselves into the word. We do not just read the word. We consider the word. We meditate on the word. We do the word and not hear the word only. We do what Owen calls the continual contemplation of Christ. If any concept of what that means, the continual contemplation of Christ. This is what the Psalms are teaching you to do. This is meditation as we intentionally and diligently fill our minds with the things of God and then we rehearse them and then we rest in them and we rejoice in them and we think on them and then we talk. About them, What this is doing is we're taking the whole of whatever it is that you're going to experience today, the great thing and the bad thing, the hugely wonderful, comfortable thing, and just the really annoying, frustrating thing. We take all of those things and we are reading them through the lens of this. This is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm feeling about what I'm experiencing. But this is what God's word says about me and about reality and about life and about sin. Do you know what it means to contemplate And consider Christ. Start with these three considerations. Take them and think on them throughout your week. How would you face whatever that thing is this week in light of God's coming judgment? What would it look like to face that frustration in light of the fact that there is a coming judgment? Also then in light of the fact of point number two, of Christ's gracious offer of life, that you don't have to face that coming judgment. Do you ever think about that in the midst of your frustrations? What would it mean to face that thing in light of this gracious revelation of his glorious identity. He is, I am. And it! the most amazing thing, the gospel, which is the power of God for our salvation, is that the one who is is also the one who died. God forbid that we get tired of that fact and that we don't tremble and delight and rejoice in that fact. That's everything. Christ says, I am And existence itself, Colossians, the one in whom all things hold together, acts the author of life, and he dies. For you, for me, because of the wages of our sin, is death. Because your infinite sin deserved an infinite, eternal punishment. But Christ takes the whole thing for you. Come on, church, consider that. Believe that. Live in light of that. Don't go a day of frustration, a conversation, or whatever without reading it in light of that fact and the gospel of grace and your salvation in Christ. Consider Christ. And consider your response to Christ. And then plead with Him for help. I'm right there with you. Beg for the eyes to see His glory. You can't do it without His help. So beg him, beseech him, don't stop and then pursue it with all that you have because it is there that you will find what you are looking for. The universal remedy and balm for your soul. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. Just think about that today. Same image from one degree of glory to another. We get glory... By grace, through beholding Christ's glory. We read in the service, Psalm 16, one of my favorites. I have set the Lord always before me. That's what we're talking about here. That's what this is. That's what it means to consider him and to meditate on him and to continue to come. I have set the Lord always before me. What's the next line because of that? What's the result? You shall not be shaken. And in the end, he makes known to us the paths of life. In his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Consider Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to consider Christ. Father, there are many things that we have today to consider. Those are not bad things. You have called us to consider other things. You have called us to live our lives in this world and to love one another and to love our families and to honor you and our work and uh, to rest and to recreate and all of these things. But, Father, may, that we, may we do all of those things now um, while we consider Christ. May we increasingly read all of those things through the lens of the Christ to his life and the gospel of grace. Uh, Father, we so struggle to do this. Uh, we are infants when it comes to understanding what it means to continually contemplate Christ and to find peace and satisfaction and rest in him. And so we simply ask for your help. Show us Christ. Give us the sight of his glory and make us glad in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.